Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Anatoly Sharansky, a Soviet Jew, kissed his wife goodbye as she left Russia for freedom in Israel. His parting words to her, I'll see you in Jerusalem. But Anatoly was detained and then imprisoned. Anatoly began to understand that their reunion in Jerusalem would not only be postponed, but it might never happen. During the years that went by in the Russian prisons and work camps, Anatoly was stripped of all his personal belongings. His only possession was a miniature copy of the Psalms that his wife had sent him from Israel. Not a bad section of God's word to be left with. At one point in time while he was imprisoned, his refusal to turn over his copy of the Psalms cost him 130 days in solitary confinement. Finally, 12 years after parting with his wife, he was offered freedom. In February of 1986, as the world watched, Anatoly was allowed to walk away from the Russian guards towards those who would take him to Jerusalem. But in the final moments of captivity, the guards tried one last time to confiscate his book of Psalms. Anatoly threw himself face down in the snow, telling the guards he would not take another step and refused to walk on to freedom without it. These were the words that had kept him alive during his 13-year imprisonment, and he would not go on to freedom without them. As we make our way to Daniel chapter 8, let us not forget that the Hebrew people were captive in a foreign land. They longed to return to their land, but right up until their time of departure, there was a remnant that actively looked to God's word, clinging to the words that offered life clinging to the words that would help them to know when they as a people could safely return to their land. Daniel was among them. Bibles open to Daniel 8. We pick up our text with verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. As we move forward in Daniel, part of my goal is to walk through these texts slowly with you, demonstrating that God's prophecy can be understood as he intended by following some basic principles of interpretation. This becomes an issue in just a minute. But first, let's set up our text from last time. Remember back, we saw in the first eight verses that Daniel was located in Babylon. He had a vision. In this vision, Daniel saw a ram which represented Persia and a goat which represented Alexander the Great of Greece. Alexander the Great was represented as a horn. After Alexander the Great died, we talked about in verse 8, the four horns represented the four generals that eventually divided up his kingdom. Now in our text, starting in verse 9, here is where we put our Bible study methods to the test. Because in the text we are in, this passage sounds much like what is going to take place 
in the future under the reign of the Antichrist. And so let's be very, very careful as we walk our way through this. Some of the most important words for understanding the fulfillment of Daniel 8 start in the opening words of verse 9, and out of them, out of them came a little horn. One of the things I've been repeating and trying to drive home is that in prophecy, horns represent power, the leadership position within an empire. But be careful here. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 are separate chapters, different visions received from God. Flip back to chapter 7. Notice again with me verse 8. Daniel 7 verse 8. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Here is one of the mistakes people make. The identification here in chapter 7 of the little horn was the Antichrist. In chapter 7, the little horn rose out of the fourth empire, or the future state of the Roman Empire. And as you flip back to chapter 8 again, we know that this must not be, it cannot be the same horn referred to back in chapter 7. Similarity does not equate with identity. Words have meaning, and God communicated to us with words. And the clear meaning intended back in chapter 8, verse 9, is that the expression, out of one of them, refers back to the verse right before. The horn of verse 9 is coming out of one of the four horns of verse 8. We have already seen how the four horns were the four parts of the Greek empire, divided up after Alexander the Great died. Just from this alone, we know that this horn came out of the Greek empire, identified for us in verse 21 as the kingdom of Greece. The details between chapter 7 and chapter 8 are completely different. In chapter 7, verse 24, the little horn would come out of the ten horns, or ten kings, of the fourth empire. Here in chapter 8, the little horn is coming up out of the four parts of the third kingdom. Recognize the details, notice the differences, and you come to the conclusion that the little horn of chapter 7 is not the same as chapter 8. Back up and remember that when we studied chapter 2 and chapter 7, when we looked at the four empires, all of the prophecies of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece had already been fulfilled. The Roman Empire was a little bit different because some of the prophecies have been fulfilled and some still await the future. But here, in chapter 8, verse 9, this is the third empire. Out of one of the four kingdoms from Alexander the Great's four generals, out of one of those four would come this little horn. And because this little horn has already been fulfilled, it's just a matter of digging into the history books to see who did the things that we will see talked about in this passage of Scripture. Remember back, we talked about when Alexander the Great died, after years of fighting, his kingdom was divided up into four different parts with four of his generals ruling. The generals' names were Cassander, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Seleucus. Seleucus is the one we need to focus on. He took control over the eastern portion of the empire, from down by India all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Four kingdoms of the Greek empire. No surprise here for Seleucus, his kingdom became known as the Seleucid Kingdom. He had control of the old Babylonian and Syrian empires. Eventually, a man named Antichus Epiphanes became the king of this Seleucid empire. 
He is the man that history tells us he fits this passage like a glove. He fulfilled it perfectly. And out of all the men that came out of Alexander the Great's kingdom, Antiochus is the only one in history that fits with the prophecy of this text. As we are about to see, Antiochus was a wicked man. But first here in verse 9, notice what we see. Out of one of the four empires came a small horn. But what else? He starts out small and grew. Antiochus took the throne when his brother was murdered. He wasn't really the rightful heir to the throne. His brother's son, Demetrius, was supposed to take the throne. But Demetrius had a problem. He was being held in Rome as a hostage. And so Antiochus bribed his way into power. He used smooth words and talked his way into the position. Daniel 11 also predicted the rise of Antiochus, and verse 21 taught that he would be a vile person who would receive the kingdom by flattery, which is exactly what he did. Verse 9 is detailed. The small horn would grow exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Depending on your translation, your Bible either says beautiful land or glorious land. Turn to Psalm 48, verse 2. And as we turn, I want you to recognize that prophecy can be understood, but you have to learn to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. This is one of several texts in the Old Testament that refers to Jerusalem like this. The idea in the expression beautiful in elevation is that as you approach Jerusalem, it is elevated and the rise upward is a graceful and beautiful natural rise. In the days of the Old Testament kings, it was a beautiful city that appeared to be strong and well fortified. Smaller nations, smaller armies would approach it with the thought of attacking and they would turn away. That's the idea down in verses 4 and 5. But here's the point in verse 2. Jerusalem was the center of all religious life because the worship of God was centered there. We know from Revelation that in the future, Christ one day will reign from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the most important city on the earth. Mount Zion was the highest point in the city. The usual reference in the Bible to Mount Zion is the entire city of Jerusalem. It was the highest point of the city, and because it was so high, the palace of the king was there. And for a long time before the temple was even built, it was where the ark was kept. And so, therefore, it became a place where the people came together to worship God. Out of this, Zion became known to refer to the entire city of Jerusalem. Even today, if you support the nation of Israel, you're often called a Zionist. Before we head back to Daniel, Notice the last part of verse 2, the city of the great king. The temple was there. This was the center of religious life for the Hebrew people. And according to Revelation chapter 21, God himself will rule the earth from New Jerusalem. The great king of verse 2 of Psalm 48 is none other than God the Son. Back in Daniel, verse 9 teaches us that this small horn grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east and toward the glorious land. We look at the Seleucid Empire, and this is exactly the directions that Antiochus Epiphanes expanded to. Just as we saw in Psalm 48 that the beautiful city refers to Jerusalem, in the same manner, the phrase beautiful or glorious land refers to the nation of Israel. Antiochus, his name actually meant the illustrious one or the distinguished one. The direction of south was fulfilled when he attacked and conquered Egypt in 170 B.C., 
and Tikkis grew to the east when he took over the rule of the former Persian Empire. After he conquered Egypt, he invaded Israel, captured Jerusalem, robbed the temple, and began a reign of terror across the land. Verse 10 looks confusing. It's not that hard. Let's read it again. It starts with the words, and it, referring back to the little horn of verse 9. So the little horn grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Albert Einstein was once a attending a dinner party. His young neighbor, a college student, was seated next to him. The neighbor had no idea who Einstein was. And as they made conversation, Albert Einstein's young neighbor asked the famous scientist, what are you actually by profession? He responded, I devote myself to the study of physics. The girl was astonished. She said to him, you mean to say you study physics at your age? And then she said, I finished mine a year ago. It illustrates an important point when it comes to studying the Word of God. As you grow in your understanding of the Word of God, you begin to see the patterns, the consistency. Over the years, you begin to see not just the individual pieces of Scripture, but you begin to see the big picture, and you begin to be able to see how the parts fit in with the plan of God for the ages. In the case of verse 10, one of the things we see is that stars often represent God's people. And we're going to see this in Daniel 12, 3, where it says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Listen carefully. The stars here in Daniel 8 signify, represent, Antichus making war with God's people. The stars and the host referred to are both references to the people of Israel. The Hebrew word for host could simply be translated a mass of people a congregation, a large group of people. The meaning here is the congregation of God's people that Antichus made war with, the priests and all those who worship the God of Israel. Think back, if you would, to Genesis. In Genesis 15 and in Genesis 22, God told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, the stars of the people of Israel, the horn causing them to fall to the earth and trampling them. This simply describes the persecution the Hebrew people suffered under the terror and reign of Antichus. It's a figurative description of the persecution they endured, and it represents the large number of people that died under his reign. Antichus is one of the greatest persecutors the Hebrew people have ever known. In one assault alone, 40,000 Jews were killed in three days, and 10,000 more were carried off into captivity. Here's how it came to a head in December of 168 B.C. Antichus had come back home. He was frustrated because the Roman armies were giving him a run for his money, and so he took out his frustration on the Jews. He ordered his general to take 20,000 troops to take control of Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Now remember, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 teach that pigs were considered to be unclean to the Jews. He set up an idol of Zeus in the temple and desecrated the altar by sacrificing a pig on it. The Hebrew people were not to even eat them or touch the dead body of a pig. Antichus sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. It was a desecration of the temple and an abomination to God. The idol he set up became known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation, which prefigures the abomination of desolation that will come during the tribulation. 
Christ spoke of this in Matthew 24. Antichus tried to make the Jews adopt the culture of the Greeks, and when he sent his men to Jerusalem, at first his men spoke words of peace to the Jews. But then they set the city on fire. They tore down homes and the city walls. They kidnapped the women and children. They stole the cattle. They tore up the books of the Mosaic Law and burned them. Any person found with God's word was put to death. If you were committed to following God's word, you were put to death. If you were a Jewish mother and you had your male children circumcised according to the Old Testament, you were killed. And they hung the infants that were circumcised. The hatred of Satan for God's people has been a steady constant in this world. This is the kind of torture and evil that took place against the Jewish people. Some estimates put it at over 100,000 Jews that died under the onslaught of Antichus. No wonder Daniel was astonished when he received this vision from God. It was three years after Antichus desecrated the Jewish temple that the Jews, under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, they rededicated the temple in December of the year 164 B.C. This is the event that the Jews still celebrate each year with Hanukkah. Take another look at verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Starting in verse 11, we get to the section of this passage that many commentators have dubbed the most difficult section of this book. I don't think it has to be that hard. The issue at stake is does this text in the little horn refer only to Antichus or does it also refer to the Antichrist during the tribulation? I believe in the singularity of meaning. I believe God wrote down his word with one intended meaning. There can be many applications and certainly the word of God can prefigure or foreshadow other events yet to come. And because of what we just looked at in verse 9, the small horn coming out of one of the kingdoms of the Greek empire, I think that is exactly what we have here, that this found its fulfillment in Antichus, but it foreshadows the future Antichrist that is yet to come. This passage was fulfilled with Antichus back in the second century B.C. There are parts that remind us of the Antichrist. There are parts that are certainly foreshadowing what will come. But this text has already been fulfilled. Certainly there are parts coming up in Daniel that are yet to be fulfilled. But these verses have been. Verse 11 starts out once again referring to the small horn, referring to Antichus. He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Antichus thought himself equal with God. And this little horn, Antichus, took away the daily sacrifices in the temple and the place of his sanctuary, God's sanctuary, God's temple, was cast down. Keep in mind that all the worship of Yahweh was outlined by God for the nation in Leviticus. For any king to come along in order the nation of Israel to change how they worship, they were setting themselves up as God. I think men do this today, defining how they want to worship defining how they want their ears tickled, how they want to be entertained instead of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Antichus certainly instructed the nation how they were to worship. He sent letters using royal messengers to Jerusalem 
and the cities of Israel. He forbid burnt offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings in the temple. Antichus instructed the people to profane the Sabbaths, their feasts, to defile the temple and the priests, to build altars and shrines for idols. The Hebrew people were told to sacrifice pigs and leave their sons uncircumcised. Antichus even told the people to forget the laws of Moses, to change the ordinances of God's law. And at the bottom of his letter, at the bottom of his royal decree to the people, he stated that anyone that did not obey the decree of the king, they would die. At the end of verse 11, the sanctuary or temple of God being cast down, the Hebrew does not mean that the temple was actually torn down, but it was trashed. It was unusable. Years later, when the temple was cleansed and made ready for use again, they had to tear out the shrines and the idols that were in it. Even though the outer structure remained intact, the interior suffered greatly. Our last verse, verse 12, if you're using the New King James, take out the word army and put in its place the word host. That is how most translations correctly state this verse. Because of transgression, a host was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. On account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, host referring to the people of Israel, same as it did in verse 10. Notice the consistency in the word of God. Let the Bible define itself. One of the hardest things is to not bring your own interpretation into the text. Let the word of God define itself and start with the premise that words have meaning. God said what he meant and meant what he said. The host, Israel, meaning here, because of Israel's transgressions, they were being given over to the little horn. The regular sacrifices, again, meaning the sacrifices to God in the temple, these things were given over to the horn. Listen, God gave his people, Israel, along with the sacrifices of the temple over to the horn. God allowed Antichus to persecute the Hebrew people because of their sin. Sin leads to death. The chastening and judgment of a holy God is something to be feared. The end of our verse testifies that Antichus would cast truth down to the ground. He did all of this and prospered. An obvious reference here to the truth of God's word. Here, the specific reference is the truth of God summed up in the first five books of the Old Testament the laws of Moses. God commanded the nation in his word how to worship. His word is truth. And by allowing the nation to be handed over, he was allowing Antichus to cast aside the truth, to throw to the side the instructions of a holy God. This wicked man did all of this and he prospered. Not too long ago, a book documented the true account of a man in Kansas City. He was severely injured in an explosion. The man's face was badly disfigured. He lost his sight in both eyes, and he lost his hands. This man was just a new Christian, and one of his greatest disappointments was that he could no longer read the Bible. But then he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips. He was hoping to do the same, so he ordered some books of the Bible in Braille. But when they came, he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had been destroyed by the explosion. One day, as he was bringing one of the Braille pages up to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters, and he instantly realized he could feel them. It hit him. He could read his Bible with his tongue. By last count, 
This man had read through the entire Bible four times. I think I can speak for most of us when I say that I wish our hunger for the Word of God was stronger. It is the psalmist who declared, Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. The Bible is the mind of God. It tells the state of man, the way of salvation. Its precepts are binding. Its history is true. Its decisions are immutable. Wisdom is found in studying it. Salvation is found in believing it. And joy is found in living it. It contains light to direct you, food to support you. Within the Bible, we see paradise will be restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell will usher in the lost. The subject of the Bible is Christ. Our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill our memories, rule our hearts, and guide our feet. Read it slowly. Read it frequently and prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. It will lead you to glory itself for all eternity. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 